History, Rabbi Blyweiss, Lecture 4. I asked who killed Hevel. The answer, anybody? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ruin what's otherwise an extended shear, but I don't have time to give it. We have so much material to cover, Bezras Hashem. But if you really go through, um, one of the fantastic perushim in the, on the Chumash is uh, one of the more contemporary ones that you see in the classic Mikroskidolos. You know the term Mikroskidolos? The, the a collection of, of classic commentaries on the Chumash, on the Torah. So uh, a more contemporary one is the Orachai Makadosh, who has a wonderful piece throughout the first Parsha in the Torah, throughout Sefer Breshis. He makes an argument that, uh, something I alluded to earlier in, in, in our class already this last week, which is that all of creation is for human beings, and therefore wherever we're holding, whatever the human beings are spiritually at, has a, a, a mystical impact on everything around us. I mean, maybe if you want to understand the concept, um, something to bring it down to earth a little bit more. You ever notice how dogs come to resemble their masters? You ever notice that phenomenon? Or uh, sometimes it's the masters come to resemble the dogs, depending on who's more uh, prominent of a personality. The same concept exists in the universe. So as humanity declines, the world declines. And he develops that. That's why now when Adam falls from Gan Eden, so now the land produces thorns and thistles, coats for dardar, because the land itself has become um, deficient and defective. And we're going to see even more, more of that in, in today's episode, in, today, in today's lecture, um, that the land itself is reflected because Adam and Adama are actually soul buddies, soul brothers, in fact, they're the same name. And whatever is going on with Adam influences the Adama. And if you follow the Orachayim HaKadosh, what you find is actually, even though Cain orchestrates the first murder, and as we said yesterday, in self-defense, he does it with his accomplice, the Adama. The Adama done it. What happens is, is that he knows the Adama, and he's building on Midrashim and all kinds of Kabbalistic ideas, including the idea that the Adama itself has the qualities of a human body, including a mouth, and he knows approximately where that mouth is. What the Pasuk says is that Cain gets up and stands over Hevel. We can reconcile it with the other famous measures that he stabs him, but he doesn't know exactly where the neshama goes out, so he keeps stabbing his body, not knowing where the key points are to actually murder him. But none of those stabbings actually do the job, and so as he's going after Hevel, Hevel's backing up, Cain's going, um, going over to him intimidatingly, and he gets him just at the edge of the mouth of the land, but it's the land, Asher Patsasas Piha, called the Pasuk, that opens its mouth. That's what I'm saying is explicit in the verses. The land itself opens its mouth and swallows heaven. What's that? Um, I don't know exactly. If you want to put it in some kind of rational service, maybe it's a volcano, maybe it's like... Go ahead and say it, I'm going to say it if you don't. Adas Korach, yeah, Korach yeah. and his followers, the land also opens its mouth and swallows them, and also swallows them. Whatever it is, clearly there's some, some kind of synchronicity where the two are, are in cahoots, are you know some kind of uh, as we say they're, they're they're cooperating, they're accomplices in crime, and uh, and, and they work together. And the land does it. And with Orchai Makadosh is is it's a very deep piece there. He's saying how we really impact all of the planet around us. Uh, uh, One thousand five hundred thirty-six years later. Um, the Mabel comes around. The first 10 generations endured for that period of time, 1,536 years. They're marked by slight decline. Um, the next generation, after Cain um, has descendants, but we see that line doesn't go very far. 
Uh, from the female side, they survive. Some of his seed actually endures, but the critical offspring from Adam and Chava is the fellow by the name, the third son by the name of Shes. He is considered, Chazal understand it from the Pasuk, that he embodies Adam's best attributes, his finest midos. When the Pasuk says, Bidmuso Kitsalmo, he was made in Adam's image like his tselem. That's a compliment. You want that on your resume, right? If anybody ever describes you, Kitmuso Kitsalmo, and the guy being described is a reflection of the tzaddik. Um, in fact, the Gemara describes him as one of um, God's separate special shepherds, which is a compliment as well. It's the Gemara in Sukkah says that David, David Melech, as the epitome of Malchus, of the kingship, is flanked. And I, this is, seems to be some kind of vision of the world to come when all the tzaddikim are out there in full regalia. So David at the, um, is flanked by some of the great tzaddikim of all time. On his, on his right side is Adam, Shes, and Mesushelach. Mr. Shalaf we're about to meet. Um, on his left, you got Avram, Yaakov, and Moshe. Interesting words. Yitzchak, there's a whole discussion there. Um, there are also the same Gemara list, eight princes among men uh, who were um, Yishai. You don't have to get all this. I'm just throwing out some big names, and we're going to meet all these figures. Yishai, Shaul, Shmuel, Amos, Tzephani, Tzitkiyahu, Eliyahu, and Mashiach. Shase has a son. We don't know much about Shase. There's not much, not a lengthy discussion. He has a son by the name of Enosh. What's the significance of Enosh? Enosh was born when Adam, uh, Enosh is already Adam's grandson. Adam was 235 years old. Not that old relative to Adam's lifespan, or 930, 930 years. Enosh was born when Adam was 235. He lived 905 years. Chase was born when Adam... Oh, I knew this. He was 130. Oh, I didn't do this whole tangent. There's so many pieces. But why was he born when Adam was 130? Remember this yesterday? Oh, because he went back to his wife. Right. Remember that Adam separated from his wife after the sin for 130 years? Do you know why that number is really important? Well, let me just do this real quickly. The number is really important because every time in life and in the Torah, when you see the number 130, it's a reference to the Erev Rav. Do you remember the Erev Rav that Adam created? He accidentally, he saw that he had that, um, that date, uh, those date leaves, the, the date garment that he had to cover himself in his private area, and inadvertently it meant that he emitted seed. That seed was converted to demo- demonic forces that reincarnated as the Erev Rav. Every single time in history, you see that Erev Rav cropping up, you see the number 30, 130. Remember, Yaakov tried to bring close the Erev Rav. How old was Yaakov when he went down to Egypt? 130, right? Remember Moshe did the same. How old was Yocheved when, when, when Moshe was born? 130. Um, every time, I mean, the number comes up constantly. I'm just giving you a few examples. Moshe tries to be metak in the Erev Rav, this corrupt spirit that's out there, but he wants to bring it close. And part of that is done by bringing korbonos. Do you remember the korbonos of the Mishkan that we offer? How much do we offer? Shloshim We read it on Hanukkah. Pay attention to the Kriya Satara on Hanukkah. Shloshim Mishkala. 130 is its weight. Oh, Mishkala. Now there's an interesting <coughs> word. Mishkala. Who tries to bring close the Erev Rav? Moshe. So you got Mishkala, even in these seemingly innocent words. Take out the letters Moshe. Mem Shin Hey, what are you left with? Kuflamid, 130. And it goes like that. Okay, so Adam was 130 when Shase was born. Who's Enosh and why is he significant? Nobody knows. Know. You should know the name. He's the third, third man in the world. I'm going to quote the Rambam. Bimei Enosh 
Tau, Taus Gedola. In the days of Enosh, humanity made a terrible, terrible mistake. Anybody know what I'm getting at? I alluded to it yesterday. I hinted at this yesterday. Now, the days of Enosh, they were very big tzaddikim. Remember, they're not so far away from Bria Sa'olam. Anytime you're near a spiritual epiphany, you're going to be very from. You're going to see a Kaddish Baruch Hu in the world. And they saw a Kaddish Baruch Hu in the world. And you know what else they saw? They looked in the sky and they saw the constellations, what we call the Mazalos. The early seeds of paganism were planted. They made a terrible mistake and they did it L'Shem Shemayim. They said, you know, there are all these stars out there. They live really close to Kaddish Baruch Hu. I love Hashem. I love this world. I want to serve Hashem. If I want to serve Hashem, it's not so far off. It seems to be an extension of that if I serve his entourage. His celestial heavenly hosts, they're all around them. Look at those stars up there. I'm serving Hashem. Initially, in the first phase of this, they were really serving Hashem using the stars as a conduit. Do you know what happened? You know how humanity works? It didn't take so long until they forgot about Hashem and they just worshipped the stars. Absolutely. It starts, it starts often, people really genuinely, everybody, we're made with Selim Elohim. We're made in the image of God. We really, all of us, want to serve Hashem. Very easily we get thrown off. Idolatry is now born in the third generation of humanity. Say it again. In the days of Enosh. Interestingly, the Rambam doesn't exactly... He brings this Masorah from Chazal. It's not like they're, they're, they're faulting Enosh personally. Although in his generation, clearly he's involved. I know, it seems like it. Bimei Enosh. Um, again, it's not, mean, it's not mean-spirited. We all seek meaning in life. We're all seeking, we're seeking some kind of understanding of how the world works. They blew it. And you know what happens? Look around at our own contemporaries. The way I'm learning history, of course, is anything that's relevant for us. We do this all the time, too. And look at, our, look at humanity. A lot of very well-intentioned people who simply do the wrong thing. They take the cop-out, easy route to try to serve Hashem. They wind up serving themselves, serving a bunch of other things. And they're not really serving HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Right? That's, that's what happened. It wasn't mean-spirited. Um, by the way, to be really from is abstract. HaKadosh Baruch Hu exists, but he doesn't give us very much to go on. He gives us the Torah. The Torah is focused on us in this world and what we're doing here and now. He doesn't really get, tell us much about him. We know about HaKadosh Baruch Hu, he's a creator. We know he's all goodness, all chesed. We're supposed to be the same way. And, and, and we're striving for that high level. But, you know... I'm picking on Karl Marx again because he has all these fundamental ideas that has a huge impact on humanity. Remember how Karl Marx referred to religion? What did he call religion? Famous line? He called it the opiate of the, ma- of the masses. But it's really an unfair accus- accusation. He's saying, ah, oh, yeah, you're one of those simpleton religious types. Yeah, yeah, but if you're really smart, you'll be Marxist and communist and secular like me. But it's backwards. Really, really, I mean, maybe simplistic religion, maybe things like idolatry where they're worshipping the stars, inachinami, it's the, it's the opiate of the masses, there, there he's on to something. But genuine religion, Taira, is incredibly abstract and sophisticated. It, it, you require a high degree of intelligence to recognize there is a God in the world, he's not like me or you, he's not like anything in our, in our vocabulary, in our conception of things, and I worship him and I live a life dedicated to him anyway. That requires immense sophistication. It's anything but the opiate of the masses. Interestingly, um, people lose track. There's a Messiah that comes from Adam Arishon 
And if you go back, if you follow the Messiah, the tradition all the way back, you get the Kaddish Baruch Hu, and people started writing um, Adam himself out of the human narrative. Interestingly, like for example, the Japanese, if you study Japanese cultures, they have all kinds of legends of how the emperors, the original rulers of humanity, descended from the sun. Because some of them got mixed up. And that can't be that they came from an Adam, and so their creation accounts are, are skewed. Can anybody do this? Um, who are the generations between Adam and Noyach? Can you do the first ten? It's good to do this. My kids can all do this. Okay, B'nai Adam. By the way, last year I challenged somebody. I, we could go from Adam down to, I think we got all the way down to the last king. The last king of the Jews, Tzipkiyahu, in the end of the first temple period. We do all the generations. The Torah presents it. If anybody wants, I'll give you the whole information. It's a fantastic thing to know. Because then you can trace all of our ancestry. Who lives the shortest life in these early generations? Somebody mentioned him yesterday. Chanuch is his name. Oh, I am. Chanuch, okay? Uh, Chanuch, it says, Vayisalech, Chanuch, Ima Elohim. He was a baby in diapers. He was only 365 years old. Relative to the first, you know, when you, when you have people living, who lived the longest life of all these early generations? Corgi and Bess, anybody? Mesushalach lived five, 900 years. Hold, hold on. Anyway, um, 969 years to be more precise. That's the longest recorded life that we have in human history. That's Mesushalach. Hanukh led the, led the shortest life of these early people. And listen to his personality. Since we're learning history from a moral perspective, right? We want to know how can we be better. What's the, what's the quality of Hanukh? Hanukh is, is a very simple, beautiful soul. He was a good person, a tzaddik, but easily influenced. And what Chazal tell us is that a Kaddish Baruch Hu took Hanukh from this world before it was too late. Before he'd get corrupted by some of the lesser influences that were around him. He died in the year 987 when, um, just to give you a little reference point, he was there with his great-great-great-grandfather, Chase. Chase was still alive. He was the third man to die after Adam and Hevel. So had Adam died, that was the first funeral. Hevel died, and then you had Hanukh's death. A quick comment on Cain and his descendants. We know stuff about them. Anybody know? What did they, what did they offer humanity? Cain and his descendants? Tuval Cain. Um, they herald human materialism. Stuff. They invent stuff. They're inventors, right? So that they are the epitome of consumption, right? Getting things. Everything that of the physical world, you know how the physical world falls apart, it decomposes. It's exactly what the mobile is designated to wipe out. Because, you know, people think it's all about, you know, the rich man who wants to have a legacy, so he donates an expensive building, but he doesn't realize buildings also crumble. So that's 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 the legacy in the negative light of what Cain's descendants leave us. Lemech was the first to take two wives. Lemech is one of Cain's descendants. And his son, Yaval, invents the portable tent. How does that change humanity? I know. Travel. I travel. We could be nomads now. We don't have to. We don't have to be plant rooted in one place. We could travel around. His son. Let me continue. His son Yuval invented wind and string instruments. Of course, all these things are very good. Remember, we said inventions are fantastic if they free us up from the physical world so we can pursue spiritual pursuits. Music could do that too. Music is part of the abode of the base of Mikdash, or or it could be a, a pagan kind of rock concert, you know, where you sit around and imbibe all kinds of illegal substances and, and, and indulge in the physical, sens- sensual aspect of life. It depends on how you're using it in the world. Then you had Tuval Kain, who begins to extract metals from ore and fashions them into kaleem. We already seen the beginning of this process. He takes it to the further. What's really going on is the humans have a newfound drive towards luxury, towards physical, sensual pursuits. 
That's the, that's the legacy of Cain's descendants. And frivolity and luxury began, something that we've taken now in the modernity since the, uh, the uh, Industrial Revolution will take all these inventions to greater heights. Um, you can use these things for, you know, to free yourself up to learn Taira, or you can use them um, to completely immerse yourself and sit there for, I don't know how many hours you can go on video games, but some of my students last year amazed me with what they can do. I mean, you could just, a whole day, just shot, gone, because you're just sitting with, playing with this stupid gadget, and then you look up, you think, what did I just do with my life? And the map thought is too painful, so you know what you do? You play another game to escape, you don't have to like contemplate the reality. People love these inventions. Meanwhile, at the same time, Noah is building the Teva, which is a whole new phenomenon itself. Noah builds the Teva. So he's building the Teva, and you know what the humanity's doing? They're going around and they're making fun of him. Oh, he's building a big boat. They're making fun of that. Meanwhile, they're luxuriating in all these other inventions that are not, not as critical for humanity. We have a similar phenomenon today. People laugh at the people who are involved in spiritual pursuits. I want to say that the, the analogy here is Noyach is worrying about the future by building the Teva. The people sitting and learning Torah are worrying about the future, about the, about the heritage of humanity, to, uh, bringing Mashiach, and people make fun of the people sitting and learning Torah. Meanwhile, what are they doing with their lives? Sometimes similarly frivolous kinds of things. Um, we mentioned this before. What, Chazal, what did Chazal say is the major cause? There were a lot of minor causes. What is the major cause of the mabul, of the flood in the, in the world? Hamas. Hamas is that category of theft where they, oh, I did this in Gemara here. It wasn't here that we talked about. It was Gemara, right? Yeah. yeah. So Hamas is the kind of theft. Um, who was with me on the tour last week? At the very end of the tour, we're standing in the, sh- in the shuk, and a guy starts to grab, um, I don't know, some nuts by the nut vendor, and I said, don't graze, it's Hamas. And it was interesting because it was by the same nut vendor that I, I years ago, I remember standing there and talk, uh, going to buy some, I don't know, some nuts or some, some whatever it was, and, and as I'm standing there, it must be like in, within, within two seconds, three different people walk by and grab a handful of cashew, cashews or whatever they're, gra- they're grabbing. And I turned to the vendor and I said, do you mind that they're doing that? Is that okay with you? And he said, no. Do you realize how much business? I, I mean, I'm not a millionaire here. I'm trying to make a parnasa, right? Do you realize how much I, you know, I lose? I said, so why do you say something? He said, I'm going to make an argument with every time somebody grabs a peanut. It's not worth my, my, uh, my, 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 my emotional well-being to, to get into an argument. He said, it's terrible. What do, what do people do, and why is Hamas worse than theft? A thief knows he's a thief. He at least has a chance to make tshuva. Somebody who does Hamas, literally defined as stealing less than a shava pruta, less than any reasonable value, will do that for the rest of his life, rationalize it, and never stop, and the chances of tshuva are almost nil. That's the quality, that's, the, that's where humanity has descended in the days of Noyach, that's why Kaddish Baruch Hu, that's why Kaddish Baruch Hu wants to start all over again. V'noach, the end of the last pasuk in Breshis, V'noach matzachein b'nei Hashem, Noach found favor in Hashem's eyes, Baruch Hashem, we see again this pattern in history, how one person can redeem all of humanity. You remember there were 974 generations before Adam, all wiped out, but when you have a tzaddik, all of the world was created for the tzaddikim like you, like us, like we're supposed to, be, we're supposed to strive for. When there's one tzaddik in a sea of Rishayim, that's what makes, that's, 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 that's what redeems all of humanity. Until Mesushelach lived, Hashem said, I'm not going to destroy the world because it's just like in Stoma and Amora, if there was a minion, Hashem wouldn't have destroyed them. As long as there's a minion of good people alive in the world, I won't destroy the world. Where was the minion? You got Noyach, 
you got the three sons, and Hashem was very generous, usually except for the feminists, we don't count women in a minion. Here they did. So Noach's wife and the three wives, they're all counted. Now you get to eight, Misushelach, and how do you come up with the tenth? The Kodesh Baruch Hu also, also in his graciousness, counted himself in the minion. Misushelach died, now it's time to bring the flood. No more, no more tzaddikim were produced in humanity. We've got to start all over. We're going to take the eight existing human beings who are good, put them on a teva, and have them survive. People describe the mabul as a destruction of the world. Here's an inverted way of looking at it. Rather than destroying the world, the mabul actually saved man from himself. Man was ra minurav. He was he was evil from his youth. The flood comes to remind us on some primal core level of our fragility in the world, that such a thing could happen in the world. It hovers in the air, it lingers, you know, as this like ongoing threat to make us realize it's not a it's not an automatic out there. You better behave yourself. You get, you get, you're going to be accounted for in the end of days. And we have this mutual obligation too. We, we don't live in a bubble individually. We have a communal obligation to ourselves, to our community, to the world to, uh, to sustain it. Interestingly, we hold without a question, right, the mob will exist. It was a flood that destroyed the world and humanity started all over again. A lot of people hold that. You know how diverse the world is and all the various cultures. We talked about how they, they sometimes have, there are many alternate explanations about the creation of humanity, but almost every culture in the world has a mobile myth. Somewhere in there, which we would explain very logically, of course they do. Because if it happened, it was devastating, it was traumatic, and of course they somehow figured it into their story as they described it. So a quick survey, uh, it impacted the world. It was, as we say, a watershed event in history, pun intended. Thank you, thank you. The, um, uh, like this. The most famous is what they call the Gilgamesh episode, which is based on the Nippur text that was discovered in the 19th century in Babylon um, that attributed the flood. Of course, if you're Babylon, who are you going to attribute the flood to? The pagan gods. But they got a flood story uh, that's, that's recounted. Um, but here's a quick survey of other cultures that you'll find a variation of the flood story. Uh, study story. You got Assyria, Eskimos, Indians, Chinese, Hindu, Puranic stories of the Manu, the Greek, um, uh, the Greek myth, the Indonesians, New Zealand, Incas, Polynesia, American India, Malaysians, and many others. What's interesting? It's absent in most African cultures, and there's an explanation for that. Africa descends from. Which of Noach's sons? Ham. Ham, who is apparently dark-skinned, okay, he descends, and some want to suggest, I don't know if this is true, but some want to suggest that Ham was after the episode, we'll talk about the episode with Ham and his father, Ham was banished by his brother, and maybe because that was an, an embarrassment for him and the family, they censored the story and they didn't tell it. Is one explanation, I don't know. Noach is described, remember Ari, you, you talked about this a few minutes ago, Noach is described in the Apostle of Tzadik B'dorosa, which is a famous machlot as Rabbi Shmuel. What does that mean? He was righteous in his generation means he really was objectively righteous, or relative to his generation, okay, so he was a good guy, but relative to the generation of Avnavina, he wasn't so much. So we're not quite sure about the caliber of his righteousness before the flood. After the flood, however, one thing about Noach is he is totally undistinguished. He simply plants a vineyard, gets some wine, and gets drunk. And their explanations, the Barbanel wants to suggest along the lines of the fact that after having experienced the trauma, 
he hasn't quite given up. He hasn't gotten descended to ultimate Yeush, but he's pretty close. And there are a lot of ways of reacting to tragedy. Um, we're going to see some good ways and bad ways through history. We're going to learn from examples of who's probably, test your history knowledge, see where you're coming from, who's probably the best example of somebody who endures unspeakable tragedy and is resilient and rises. Eov is debatable, and it, I got that one online. If you want to do my Eov series online, you can see Katira that to say about Eov. I wouldn't bring him as an example. He responds to a tremendous adversity and rises. Excellent example. I like King David. Shimshon, true. He also eventually brings the house down. There's somebody who's really a great example. Really, the, the, probably the best example you can bring of all of history. Jewish. Jewish. Very Jewish. Prophetic. That was a hint. Prophet. Better. Yirmiyahu Navi. Yirmiyahu Navi endures the the Churban Bayis Rishon, and where other another lesser mortal would be devastated by the destruction. Yirmiyahu, Mamish is resilient. He rebounds and uh, is immense personality. We'll talk about him. He's one of my favorites in history. Anyway, Noach is not quite as uh, formidable personality. He gets drunk. He basically submerges himself in the physicality that destroyed his contemporaries. His son Ham and then his, his, uh, his son's fourth son, Knan, seem to follow in the pattern. What did Ham do exactly in the tent that day? There are two views. Rashi brings the two. Either he either castrates his father or he commits uh, an, uh, an act of intimacy with his father. Each one reflects a certain amoral way of being. Life doesn't have meaning. Seed is there to just be spilled. If, 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 it's, if it's indeed sodomy that he commits with his father, there's no purpose. There's no purpose of human intimacy. So I'm just going to spill the seed randomly just because it, feel it feels good. Alternately, if it's castration, why would he castrate Nayak? And then why does Nayak wake up and say, what are his first words? Arur, well, I would have thought so, but no. Arur Knaan. But it's a little strange, no? Cursed is Canaan, Knaan. But Ham just did the act. Why does Noach wake up and say, Aruknan, so here's a pshat. Here's a pshat based on Rashi. He castrates his father because right now... He wants more for his son. He wants more for himself. Right now, the, the old man kicks the bucket and now the world is going to be divided into three. It's shame, it's calm, it's yafis. There are three of us in this world right now. We're going to divvy up the spoils, the plunder, three ways. But of course, if dad has a fourth son... My stocks just plunge. I, I go down from a third to a fourth, and if he has a fifth son and a sixth son, forget it. He, he castrates his father to ensure his inheritance, which is a certain kind of self-motivated mode of being that we find very prevalent in the world today. He wants to make sure that his father does not have a fourth son. Noach wakes up, he knows the type, he knows his son, and he wakes up and he says, Aruknan, Nan shares the quality with his father Ham, and he also happens to be the fourth son of Ham, the fourth son that Noah himself now will never have. And that's the curse of Canaan. We're going to meet the Canaanim. There's seven Canaanite nations. They are going to come to represent everything that is evil in the world. They and the Egyptians are the epitome of corruption in this world. Their ways there are abominable. And they represent this complete denial of a Kaddish Baruch of goodness, of holiness in the universe. It takes humanity ten generations to recover from the trauma of the Mabul. We never get back up from the Mabul until Abram Avinu comes in the world. But wait, 
A few important details. What happens in the interim, in these ten generations? Seventy nations descend from the three sons of Noach. Here are the interesting points that you should make a note of. Three, three sons, Shem, Ham, and Noach, beget 70 nations. Um, here's the interesting points. There are 14 that come from Yefes, um, which includes most of Europe. Yefes begets most of Europe. It includes Magog, Mada, Yavan, Greece. Tiras is Pras, Persia. Ashkenaz, Germany. Kita, Kitim. 30, much, many more than, than, than just the 14 from Yefet. 30 come from Ham. Ham includes most of Africa, Kush, Mitzrayim, Egypt. Knan, Nimrod, Bavel, Asher, Plishtim, the Philistines. There were a couple really gross ones. The Patrosim and the Kasluchim who switched wives. Sidon. And from Shem, you have the rest of the nations, 26 nations. Asia. Asia comes from Shem. In fact, the Abarbanel says that the word Asia is a variation somehow linguistically on the word Shem. And of course, we descend from Shem. From this time in history, there are now mitzvahs beyond just... You know, there was one mitzvah on the first man, not to eat from the fruit. Well, that, we, know, we know how well that worked. Um, now there are how many mitzvahs on humanity? Sheva mitzvahs b'nei noach. You know how to remember them. You know the mnemonic. You should know this. Again, this class is everything you need to know to be a knowledgeable Jew. How do you know the sheva mitzvahs b'nei noach? Like this. Aleph, base, gimel, dalid, and the three big ones. The three big ones being the big sins that are binding not just on Jews but all of humanity that Yeharid Valyabor they're so they're so grave they're so grave that a person has to die and not transgress namely don't kill Shrikus Dumming spilling blood adultery or not just adultery let's define these more specifically there's Shrikus Dumming spilling blood there's Gilu Arayos all the prohibitions related to intimacy including adultery but incest bestiality many others as well and finally and, and probably really should have been first Avodah idolatry worshipping anything but a Kodesh Baruch Hu. and then you get Aleph based Gimel Dalet Aleph Aleph no no help me here Ilan come on Aleph Aver Minachai it's eating a torn limb from a live animal it's not just tearing the limb it's eating the actual uh, product of the limb that's a prohibition even on non-Jews base is what they call Birkas Hashem it's a euphemism it's blessing Hashem but it's the opposite Something that's so horrific, like cursing the Almighty, is so terrible that Chazal express it by, by giving the opposite idea of blessing the Almighty. We all know that it means the prohibition of cursing. Gimel, obvious. No, no. Gezel. Theft. And finally, Dalit is the one positive mitzvah. Dinim, which means they have to set up a basic core system. You cannot have, even the Goyim are prohibited from having a system of anarchy. They can't live with anarchy. There has to be some justice in the world. That, these, this is a system that basically is binding on all of humanity um, till today, even after Mustan Taira. The new covenant, the new pact with humanity, hold on for just to have a second, is now symbolized by an act of nature, namely, we have a bracha around this, the rainbow. Okay, the rainbow, um, which is a reminder that after the flood, Hashem promises never to destroy the world with water. Notice how I'm qualifying. I'm using my words very carefully. He never destroyed the world with water. He never mentioned anything about nuclear warfare. But water, at least, will not be used to, to wipe out humanity. And the symbol of that is the rainbow. So when, things, when do we see a rainbow? When things get really bad and we need a reminder that a Kodesh Baruch is going to take care of us. Oh, phew, there's a rainbow. Thank God. 
literally and figuratively. There are a couple generations, however, that are so good, that are so illustrious, they don't even need a rainbow. Let me know which, which, in history when we have, there are two examples brought, Rashi brings that on the post there. What are the two generations that are so good, they don't even need a rainbow? Not Shlomo, one of his descendants, Chizkiyahu Amelech, his generation, which is a Gavaldiga generation, and much later in the days of the Tanaim, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's generation. Those are two generations singled out. Maybe there are a couple others too. Here's the Ramban and many other post scheme who describe the following. This is not well known, you should know this. The Mabul represents a sea change, a radical paradigm shift in all of the humanity, in all of the world as follows. Previously, before the flood, in what's, it, there's an English word for this, in the antediluvian world, before the flood, there used to be strange, mostly tummy creatures. Some want to suggest this, they may be dinosaurs. They suddenly, with the flood, became extinct. Hmm. Okay, I don't know. You make the connection. The Sforno and others explain that with the flood, not only was there water, but the actual world itself changed. The world was perfectly aligned with the sun, and so it was a constant vernal equinox. It was always springtime. With the flood, the world tilted, and all of nature now changes. And, and stay with me with the ramifications. They are deep and wide and, 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 and wide-reaching. Um, it used to be that day and night were equal length. After the flood, the planet becomes inferior. The produce that, that, that comes from the land is not as nutritional. Human beings are now much more sickly, much less healthy, and the first logical result is something that you all know, human lifespan drops dramatically. No more of these 969-year lifetimes. Suddenly you got people alive for this pathetic 70 years, considerably shorter, all of which is a result. Remember Adam and Adama, those of you who were here at the very beginning, we did a whole discussion. Adam declines and that directly <coughs> impacts the planet. And the planet is now an inferior planet because of our Im uh, relative immorality. Weather conditions. Weather conditions now decline. Um, the Barbanel basis, ba based on this, tells us that now there's a new part of the human diet that previously was prohibited. What's now permitted to us? Meat. We were before herbivores. Now we are carnivorous. We can eat meat. Why? Because uh, uh, you ate a piece of fruit. You ate a peach before, and that one peach had such uh, potent nutritional value. It took you a week to recover from that peach. You were fine. Now you ate a peach. The peach is deficient. You gotta, you gotta supplement your diet diet with some proteins. Now, Kaddish Baruch Hu permits us to have meat because our diet is flawed. Um, you see this. Who else? By the way, there's one other figure that, according to the Medrash, survived the flood. Oh, Melech Habashan, and he, leads, he lives one of these really blessed, long lives. And one of the explanations is because he's from the, the antediluvian world before the flood. He has that healthiness that permits him to, to lead, to have this incredible longevity. Arif Yamish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If what? The wilderness will not like, climb onto the side of the earth. Yes, yeah. that's oak. Melech Habashan. Very good. Shame also did, but he, he also comes from before the, the word. By the way, that's not um, that last point. It has some inconsistencies. We're going to meet through history some incredibly interesting figures who had also who were not from before the flood and had longevity. Yaakov. Who am I thinking of? Yaakov never died. Eliyahu Navi never died. We're going to meet some others too. 
Surf Basasher has a very long life. We're going to meet a bunch of them. So all of these are, are, are stories themselves. Usually that reflects greatness, but not always. Since the flood changed all of the world, the flood changes all of the world. Ever studied geology before? I'm big in geology because I'm a tour guide and I ran a tour guide training program. So you have to know everything about geology. And when we, when we had the latest, I had to bring in experts in every field to my, to my tour guide training class. So this professor of geology came in to my, geo, geomorphology came in to lecture my tour guide students. And he started, he said, in geology, and he's teaching a bunch, he's secular, and he's teaching mostly from students in my class. And he says, you know, we go with the assumption in geology, and he actually was giving the history of geology, he said, we go with the history of geology that the world as we see it today is effectively the same world as it's always been, and we therefore study and are able to accurately, within a margin of error, be able to say that the world is 13, 14 billion years old, and be able to date things, and date the rocks, and all the rest of that. And I, I said, I was the director of the course, so I had the authority to do this, and I jumped in and I said, of course, as religious Jews, we take exception from this. We are not with the geologists then from the get-go, from the very assumption. Remember, all sciences are based in axioms. Remember the whole thing of non-Euclidean non geometry I talked about on Sunday, right? From the get-go, I'm not with you on your assumption because we have these pivotal milestone events that actually change the nature of the world. You can't assume that the world as we see it today is as it's always been. The mob will change things. You can't measure the date of the, of the universe. You can't measure even the date of these rocks to know with any accuracy if the world is not the same today as it was before. And the mob is not the last time in history that all of the world changed. When else did all of the world totally change? The two more events that are such cataclysm that the entire world is, is affected by it. Right. Har Sinai for sure, and, and Kriyas Yamsuf if you want to add to it, but I'm thinking more particularly of Korban Bayis Rishon, Korban Bayis Shani. When the temple is destroyed, all of the world changed, something we're going to have to comment on, but that means they can't study today's world and try to get within a, within a margin of error of accuracy any clear data about the past. Hold the thought for a second. Hold the thought. Um, this is, I, I really want to finish this unit because it's all part of the piece and I'm not going to get to the good stuff today. I'll have to start on this first thing on Sunday. Uh, the really interesting new piece that I haven't had in my past lectures but we'll get to that on Sunday. Um, if you think you might forget it, I, I'd hate for you to lose some of these insights or thoughts so make a note of them so you don't forget them. If I ever tell you I don't want a question right now, uh, please, please make a note of it. Um, anyway, we can, we, we don't, we don't, we're not with the, the scientists from the get-go. Um, just a quick comment. This, what, everything I've just been saying about the change in the planets is the consensus of most opinions in the commentaries. The Rambam disagrees. The Rambam has a different line of, uh, of thinking. He argues that the world as we know it today has been the same, at least with regards to human health, that um, his point is that any human being who leads a morally upstanding life and maintains basic health exercises, eat, exercises eats well. Go look up Rambam's Hilchos Deos. He describes exactly how to do that. Um, you can achieve longevity before the flood, after the flood, but Rambam is a bit of a minority of the view on this. The Mabul stopped time. There have been a few points in history that time stopped. The Mabul was one of them. Yeshua bin Nun also stopped time. Um, mm -hmm, Moshe. Um, its legacy is our psychological terror at existence, at our fragility in the world, which simultaneously is a really dreadful, terrible thing, and ultimately is a really helpful, healthy thing. Because it kind of keeps us in line, doesn't it? Because if this kind of stuff can happen and there's a correlation between the big cataclysms of the world and little bitty me, my puny existence, and my ability to say hello to my friend in the morning and to pay my taxes on time and to lead an upstanding life on a moral level, um, 
then I better behave myself. That's really the legacy that, that, we, it, that endures till today. Um, I mentioned that Hashem promises that there's no more flood by water. He never says anything by fire or splitting atoms. And this ultimately should bring us back to Emunah. As we live in the last century, humanity has, has really been living in the shadow of a distinct possibility of complete annihilation. It was, it, until the nuclear arms race, there wasn't an immediate threat that all of humanity could be obliterated by one nutcase. But now today, all it takes is one crazy, uh, one crazy ayatollah over in Iran to press a button, and that's it. And on some level that's terrifying, and on some level it's terribly humbling, and in a good way brings a person to a muna. And I want to, you know, I, I cite the fact that today in the world there is an immense return to religion across the board. Tomorrow, uh, not tomorrow, on Sunday, really important, connecting the pieces. I would have talked, and I've got, and I've got this new unit that I'm very excited about. You can tell I was, I, I hope to get it today, and we get to meet uh, one of the pillars of all of humanity. Uh, we're going to talk about um, Avram Avinu. So have a wonderful uh, tool tomorrow and a great Shabbos.